Today's episode is brought to you by Hanif Abdurraqib's A Fortune for Your Disaster, one of Publishers Weekly's most anticipated collections of the fall. Booklist's starred review says when an author's unmitigated brilliance shows up on every page, it's tempting to skip a description and just say, read this. Such is the case with this breathlessly powerful, deceptively breezy book of poetry. Khadija Queen adds, a fortune for your disaster proves that if you pay attention, black people have defined and still define themselves for themselves amid roses and dandelions, cardinals and violets, the blues of music and police uniforms, prayer and swagger, Kehinde Wiley paintings and too many funerals, the streets of bleak cities and the fraught histories of a kill or be killed nation. A Fortune for Your Disaster is out September 3rd from Tin House Books and available for pre-order now. And now is a good time to pick up a copy of Hanif's book in anticipation of our conversation about it, which should air mid-October. Next up is my conversation with Aisha Papachabujak about her debut collection of stories, The Trojan War Museum. Papacha also reads her as-of-yet-unpublished essay entitled Documented for the Patreon Bonus Audio Archive. If you're a regular listener, consider supporting the show. There are many enticements to do so on the Patreon page, but perhaps you find the content itself valuable enough to help me to continue to bring these conversations to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers, or if you prefer a one-time or monthly donation rather than a per-episode one, you can go to tinhouse.com slash podcasts and click on PayPal there. You'll also notice that you can sort the episodes there in case you want to foreground the fiction episodes or the nonfiction, the poetry or the science fiction, or discussions where the work is hybrid or resists genre categorization. Enjoy today's program with Aisha Papacha Bujak. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Aisha Papacha Bujak, a graduate of Princeton and the MFA program at Arizona State University. Bujak has taught at Oberlin and Minnesota State University and was the director from 2011 to 2013 of the creative writing program at Florida Atlantic University, where she is a professor of English. 
She's also a contributing editor for the literary journal Copper Nickel. Bujak's stories and essays can be found in One Story, Creative Nonfiction, The Kenyan Review, The Iowa Review, The Fairy Tale Review, and Witness, among others, as well as garnering her an O. Henry Prize and a Pushcart Prize. Aisha Papacha Bujak is here today to talk about her much anticipated debut collection of short stories out from W.W. Norton entitled The Trojan War Museum and Other Stories. Publishes weekly in their starred review, calls the 10 stories in the Trojan War Museum remarkable, beguiling, inventive, and humane, marking Bujak as a writer to watch. Kelly Link adds, this is one of the best and most surprising collections I've read in a long time. A wonder cabinet of stories, every story so singular and marvelous that I spent a long time after each, wanting to linger in the space it had created. Andrea Barrett says, Aisha Papacha Bujak shares with Jhumpa Lahiri the gift of fusing distinctive subject matter with an unusually restrained and elegant voice. This marvelous debut collection is truly rare in its range and depth, its deft mastery of history and myth, and its fearless storytelling. Finally, Joshua Ferris says, Bujak's stories are wide-ranging and capacious, formally playful and moving. They speak on behalf of women who are subject to fate and the tides of history. They speak of overcoming, of falling prey, of overcoming again. They convey history's full force, but also the individual's willfulness, cunning, and compassion. These stories are entirely contemporary and unique. Welcome to Between the Covers, Aisha Papachevuchak. Thank you. So the Trojan War Museum took you a decade to write, which isn't uncommon for debut collection of stories. But what seems to me more uncommon is that this isn't just a collection of stories that you wrote between point A and point B, but that instead you came up with the idea for a collection before most of the stories were written. So given that the idea came prior to many of these stories' existences, I was thinking maybe a good place to start would be to talk about the Trojan War Museum as a whole, as a project maybe you can walk us through the process of how you came to conceive of it originally and then write your way towards it. Sure. So first, I was a person who definitely resisted the idea that story collections should have links or that they you know, need to be anything other than written by the same person. But I was writing stories, trying to figure out how I wanted to write about the Turkish half of my identity. And eventually it occurred to me, partly because I have a colleague who does mixed race studies who I'm good friends with, and I realized, like, I don't have to write about being Turkish. I can write about being someone who is a mixed person of Turkish and American descent, and that I can write about Turkishness through the lens of being an American who has it kind of pop up in her life. Um, And I always say to people that the best example is the same way that Turkishness pops up in a lot of readers' lives, which is they're reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the Turkish delight <laughs> comes on the page and tempts, I guess, Edmund, maybe. Um, and But my whole life is like that. It's it's moments of Turkishness kind of appearing in a text and my going, oh, there I am. Um, and so I started writing stories that literally came about um, with this kind of serendipity where 
Turkishness would come into my life and I'd think, oh, maybe I want to write a story about that. For, you know, for example, my dad was, he would always forget what I knew and what I didn't know about being Turkish. And so he made reference to this Turkish tale that's well known to any Turk of the wrestler who has his hands chopped off as he's you know, drowning. Um, and, and I thought, oh, I have no idea what he's talking about, but I'm going to figure this out and turn it into a short story. Or a friend of mine who's really into magic was talking about the automaton that played chess. And I suddenly yelled out, it's called the Turk and realized I was going to write a story <laughs> about that. So, so that was basically how each of the stories came about that some element of Turkishness, either through the news or through one of these um, random episodes popped into my life. And I thought, Oh, is this a story or not? And it didn't always turn out to be the story I thought, but, but in most cases it did yield a story. And I kind of liked the serendipity of that, of just letting um, randomness bring the stories together. Well, I really like the idea that um, you had to sort of reconceive who you were as a person, as part of conceiving the the story collection project. Uh, and you've talked about your reluctance to write about your Turkish half before in your essays and other interviews. And I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, about why in the beginning, at least, you didn't know whether you should write about the Turkish part of you. Um, can, can you can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I, I mean, it's on the simplest level, I just I grew up in the U.S. from the time that I was four. My mom's American. I only speak English. I did not have a religious background that connected to being Turkish. I didn't have a cultural background that connected to being Turkish. You know, some of my friends would go to Chinese school or things like that. Um, I don't speak the language. I did not know other Turks. So I other than your dad, other than my dad, who my mother likes to tell me was unusual, because he was very, very versed in American culture. Uh, so he also as far as being an immigrant dad, was not an immigrant dad that needed me to translate for him. He was very versed in being an American himself. Um, so I've it I did feel like, well, who am I to claim Turkishness? And in hindsight, I can also see how it, it was comfortable to not claim Turkishness because that would have, you know, that is a layer of difference that I didn't necessarily embrace. I also had a nickname growing up, so I didn't go by Papatia during most of my young life. And so even my name was not an element of Turkishness. And I think that is one thing that changed as an adult in using my Turkish, very noticeably Turkish to Turk's name. I was kind of outed as a as a part Turk. Um, so I think that's one reason I started to think more about it. Also, I realized I could educate myself. I didn't need to be, I could stop blaming my parents for not making me proper Turk. And I could learn a lot more and feel more Turkish. But mainly it really was um, this recognition from other writers who are mixed, who would identify a lot of the same experiences of saying, oh, well, maybe I'm not Indian enough or Chinese enough or whatever it is to claim that. But then if you're mixed, you know, you are this third thing. And I feel like that's the proper thing to claim. And I'm not sure that anybody reading my stories would necessarily recognize that that's what's happening. But it was for me enough permission to figure out how to write about that element. And and partly I enjoyed just following my curiosity, which I had developed as an adult that I didn't 
seem to have in quite the same way as a kid. Hmm. Well, I, I really like a couple of things you said about mixed identity. One was it took me a while to learn that hybridity does not contain separate contrasting elements, but rather is the blend of those elements, which you, you've spoken to. But you've also hinted at this other thing about this middle or third identity in the sense that your father, even though he's fully Turkish and a Turkish immigrant, was very versed in American culture. You, you, you've talked about how you're not just influenced by your mother being American and your father being Turkish, but also that you're influenced by your mother's attraction to a Turk and your father's attraction to an American, which I just think is this really brilliant reframing. Yeah, I think that was something that also I didn't figure out till I was well into adulthood that I am influenced a lot more by my parents' curiosity than by their actual cultural identities and that really they always both read international authors and listened to international music and watched international films. And so that was just very normal to me growing up. And, and I think that has been a really positive influence in terms of just being open-minded about influence and experiencing different forms of art. So I want to start by talking about the story that ends the collection, the, the gathering of desire, because for me, there was something about this story that felt iconic in relationship to the collection as a whole. So I was hoping maybe before I ask you some questions about it, if you could talk to us about more in detail about the mechanical Turk that you've referenced and how that story came together for you. So that is one, like I, I was starting to say before, that was one of these serendipity moments where my friend and I went to this showing of All About Eve where one of the stars was there. This is in South Florida. Um, and it was a very surreal evening. So I just mention it because I feel like it sets the tone for creativity where this former star who um, played like the best friend, I'm forgetting her name, unfortunately, um, she was like 90 and they trotted her out to um, talk about the movie, which she seemed to have no memory of. And then her very young boyfriend came out and sang and it became clear that the real reason she had agreed to do this was to present him singing. And so it was this strange evening <laughs> just for context. And then my friend and I were just talking, um, you know, waiting for the show or something. And he starts talking about magic and how really, the most interesting thing about magic is the mechanics. And so then he references automatons and I started yelling about the Turk and I thought I want to go home and write this story. Um, but all in all, it just felt like, Oh, this is this. It was a fun memory for me that I liked building a story out of. So I think sometimes we're partly just finding ways to have fun with what is a lot of hard work most of the time. And so I liked having that as the inspiration moment. Um, but then, so I started reading about the mechanical Turk itself, which basically is dressed like an Ottoman and on the, had this huge cabinet that was, um, hiding a man who was actually operating the machine. And he, the man inside the Turk was a chess master. And so the Turk was very, the, the automaton was very good at playing chess because this guy was very good at sitting inside this dark little space and playing chess and so the story was going to be about him because that seemed pretty interesting in and of itself but then i found out that there's this very small number of people who b 
beat the Turk. Hopefully I'm getting this right and remembering this right. One of them was a woman, and I could not find anything out about her. But I thought, well, that's interesting. And that happened to have taken place in Philadelphia, which is near where I grew up. And so I thought, oh, I'll just use Philadelphia because that's kind of fun for me. I can research Philadelphia. Then I think because I just like introducing the element of the surreal or the magic and the cultural tales, that's when the automaton itself had a kind of omniscience in the story. Hmm. And set the, the story basically has these three voices that follow the three characters, the Turk, the guy inside, and the woman who defeats him. Yeah. Well, many of your stories, this one included, have a fantastical fairy tale-like feel to them, and yet are improbably based on real things like the Mechanical Turk. So I would often find myself going to the internet to see which parts of the stories were fully imagined and which were historical, because it's not really clear because you choose things that are often real, but yet fantastical. And it's interesting to learn, at least for me, how big a phenomenon the traveling mechanical Turk was, that the mechanical Turk defeated Benjamin Franklin, that the mechanical Turk defeated Napoleon, and that Edgar Allan Poe wrote about it when he was a journalist. Um, and I, this is a question that I think would, would be a through line for that I could ask for many of your stories. And I want to talk about this more fully later, but specific to the gathering of desire, what considerations did you have around what to imagine versus what to render from history? Well, I would have liked to have rendered the setting more, this Philadelphia in this time period. And honestly, I had a hard time fitting it in, um, I think the voice of the Turk is the more um, kind of oral narrative, more lyric style in that story. And that I didn't feel like it gave me that much room to switch fully over into a, here's what the world looked like in Philadelphia in this 19th century. And, and here are the details of the tour of the Turk, et cetera. All of which I actually really thought would be the bulk of the story and that, and I got a little worried that I was relying too much on the fairy tale, folk tale element of the voice. Um, but I honestly, for better or for worse, I couldn't force the story to do what I wanted it to do. So so it went this this other way. Um, but a lot of times I do have this vision of writing a more realist story that sets the historical ground and creates all these images of what the time period or how I imagine it. And then when I write that stuff, it comes out kind of boring. And so I delete it. Well, perhaps because the story comes at the end of the collection. And by then I've experienced all the different approaches you take toward grappling with Turkish identity. I feel like you were all the characters in this story in particular, that you were the mechanical Turk, that you were the person hidden inside of the mechanical Turk making it come alive and that you were the girl playing against the mechanical Turk that in a way the mechanical Turk is your Trojan horse into your identity, essentially. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know how I feel about being, uh, compared to the guy inside the Turk who really has quite a meltdown in this story, <laughs> but I see what you mean. Yeah. He's the one actually moving things around. Um, well, well, there's this great paragraph at the end of the story that I'm going to lift out of context and read, and then maybe push on this analogy a little more. 
Inside of her is the capacity to love beyond love. Inside of her is the history of time up until that moment. Inside of her is an infinite space that contains all things, including what she has lost. What he wishes he could make her understand is there is no her, there is only inside of her. I, I love that line and and the way you play with who we are inside versus how we appear in, in the world. And I wanted to take this notion of the mechanical Turk who is created to present sort of a fixed notion of what a Turk is to the world. So from what I read, it was designed explicitly to look like the quote-unquote oriental sorcerer. And, and to take that and look at how you write about the way you as a person appear in the world. So out, outside of the book, you've written about two aspects of how you're perceived or misperceived. And one is around the question of whiteness and and then the other, as you've alluded to already, is around your name. And I was kind of wanting to start with your own meditation on your name and how much your name might be a mechanical Turk or something that you're hidden inside of or something that you're playing against. You gave a talk at AWP called Writing Through the Immigrant Lens, and in it you say, My mother is American and my father Turkish. I was born in Istanbul but raised in the United States. But all you really need to know about my level of Turkishness is that once a student I didn't know came to my office and said, we have the same name. I said, Aisha, and she said, Aisha. She corrected my pronunciation of my own name. That is the immigrant lens through which I write. I'm sort of hoping you will unpack that for us. How How is that the lens, the vantage point from which you, you approach your writing? Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before of not feeling Turkish enough to write about Turkey. Even thinking about the, the Gathering of Desires story, um, I worry a lot that when if Turks read this book, they will recognize that the things I'm writing about tend to be the things that Americans notice about Turkey. Like, I fear sounding like a tourist of of Turkey. I'm not sure this is answering your question at all, but um, when, like the mechanical Turk itself is not something that Turks, I think, <laughs> think about. However, the language that you reference at the end of the story um, about the, you know, there is no inside of her is something that I got from reading about Sufism. So even that, you know, you mentioned before some of the things you can't tell what's real and what's invented. Even some of the language I'm using is actually pretty common to either Turkish folktales or um, various related religious practices. And I'm lifting that too. And I have a fear that I might be doing some of it wrong. So hopefully... It's, I'm still operating in that third space where I'm just mixing what I know and showing how I experience it. Um, but the thing with my name, I, I definitely, when I meet other Turks, I'm very, very quick to identify my particular status because I, <laughs> I, I don't want to look like I'm pretending to be something other than, than what I am and... I don't know what I think is going to happen that someone's going to be like, you're not Turkish enough. Um, but I do immediately because people will speak to me in Turkish and I'll say, I don't speak Turkish. And 
my mother's American, I go off like on a whole thing that makes me sound nuts, I'm sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that, about your name too, because I feel like you do this really interesting. I understand the anxieties and of not claiming too much, but you also make an interesting move. So you've written in many places about your name. You also have audio of your father on your website, correcting your, your pronunciation. When I asked for your help in, in reading the quote that I just read, the two versions, yeah, that went um, really well. <laughs> you said you avoided saying your name out loud. You've also written about how students find ways to avoid saying it. Yeah, about... I, well, I'm going to stop you because I don't avoid it. I just not consciously avoid it. I just don't. I think I unconsciously avoid it. Yeah. Which I think is different. Yeah. No, I think so, too. <laughs> And also you've, you've written about how when you lived in Turkey, your American mom wanted you to speak Turkish, but your Turkish dad wanted you to speak English. So you ended up speaking English with a Turkish accent and Turkish with an American accent. So, that, so much so that your mom thought you and your brother sounded weird. Like idiots. Is what she actually <laughs> said. Um, and then you, but you make this interesting move in, in, again, in this essay, writing through the immigrant lens, instead of expressing all of this as a source of anguish. You claim that you claim this impossible to pin down identity as an asset. You quote Toni Morrison uh, from her book, The Origin of Others, where she says, at the fence is where the most inter interesting things happen. And the part of the essay I was hoping you'd elaborate on in light of this idea of writing at the fence is something that at least at first glance seems to contradict this a little bit. You say, Immigrant writers face a lot of pressure to write autobiographically, but I had little interest in writing from my own experience. What I wanted was to be able to write from my point of view. So when, when I think of you writing at the fence, to me, that feels like that would be you writing from your experience as a mixed heritage writer. So obviously I don't understand the distinction and that's what I'm curious about. So t tell us how writing from one's point of view is different than writing from one's experience. Yeah, so I'm very worried about sounding like a egomaniac or something. <laughs> but I do think I don't hold as much loyalty to one perspective or even one country in the way that sometimes people do. So I don't it's, I'm I don't want to say that I'm more open-minded than other people because plenty of people are way more open-minded than I am, but I do think I'm open-minded and I think that I'm writing from that point of view of not feeling loyal to Turkey or America. I'm not suggesting I'm somehow disloyal to either one, but I don't feel a need to hold to a certain narrative that um, we might be pressured to. Certainly in Turkey, people are pressured to. And something I've often wondered about is if, if I was in Turkey, um, where especially now, but certainly historically, writers are very politically pressured and endangered um if i would be brave enough to write um and so i think mm. maybe i feel like i'm in a safe space where i can criticize everybody i don't know i don't know maybe it's not a unique perspective maybe you've defeated my whole theory oh no i wasn't trying to <laughs> defeat it i was just trying to get clarity on on how writing at the fence might be writing from a, a, your point of view rather than your experience if that's but, true, or maybe yeah, I misunderstood I mean, I guess, the connection. No, I guess maybe the one thing I'm confident of is I'm not writing about my experience. Maybe I am writing from my experience, but I, I'm not in any way 
writing stories about this is what it's like to be me. Um, and, and I did when I started writing and figuring out how to write about Turkey, feel pressured to do that, that I wrote in in undergrad and grad school, more autobiographical stories, Hmm. which really did read like an American goes abroad tourist stories. Um, and it, it wasn't, I I think when I let go of writing about things that had actually happened to me and particularly embraced doing research and reading other literature that could then influence me. Um, so I guess whether you put that under experience or point of view, I'm not sure, but, it, but I'm definitely not writing autobiographically. Hmm. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Aisha Papacha Bujak about her debut story collection, The Trojan War Museum. So I wanted to move to the other side of the collection, the opening story, the one that won the O. Henry Prize, The History of Girls. You've talked about how perhaps one of the hesitations of writing about or claiming the Turkish aspect of your identity is that your father was the only Turkish presence in your life, that Turkey, as you said, would only appear in your life as random intrusions, and that the history of girls was one of your first attempts to include the way you experience these intrusions in your fiction and thus one of your first attempts to move from perhaps being an American writer to a Turkish-American writer. So maybe you could it, it just introduce the the story of the story to us. Yeah, so I read a newspaper article, and, you know, I like to say, I, like to say, I do say that this story took, this um, collection took 10 years to write, but I'm actually not sure. I think it might have taken longer, because when I, I couldn't find the first draft of History of Girls, but I have a feeling it's it, it's more than 10 years ago. But anyway, I, I read a newspaper article that was about an explosion at a girls' school in Turkey, where people died, and the first news article said, well, we don't know what caused this explosion, but my mother, who had taught English in Turkey, including at a girls' school, said immediately it was the gas, and it turned out she meant these propane tanks, which I actually didn't know until the book came out, and I had misidentified the origin of the story. I thought it was like a natural gas explosion or something. I don't know. Um, she said, it's obviously this, this, the gas that was a problem in the sixties. And, it, you know, clearly it's been a problem for 30, 40 years. Um, and that particular response by my mother struck me because it seemed like, oh, well, that's a problem somebody should have fixed a long time ago. And why haven't they? And of course there's all kinds of reasons for that, but it did feel like, oh, nobody was looking after these girls in particular, which felt like maybe was because they were girls. And so that was the origin. But then I also just, I had in my head that I wanted to try to write a story in first person plural. And so somehow that also, that exercise element of it, of just wanting to try, um, partnered with this idea. So I started writing from the we. And the first draft of the story was entirely in we. And then the ultimate draft does end with an I, which I have to admit actually feels a little disappointing to me. I wanted to pull it off as a we all the way through, but then I felt like I needed a, or actually someone told me I needed a shift by the end of the story. And the shift in point of view was, was able to um, allow for that because the bulk of the story is really um, in a physical reality where not much can happen. Um, So I couldn't really introduce a lot of plot to move the story forward. So it really was a point of view shift that altered it. Can we hear a little bit of it? Sure. 
We had been taught the history of girls. In Hiroshima, hundreds of schoolgirls were clearing homes and roads to make the widest of fire lanes when the bomb came. In China, in India, some girls weren't allowed to live a day. In Russia, Uzbekistan, in Georgia, in Ukraine, girls were sold once and shipped abroad to be sold again and again. It was how we learned our geography, the history of innocence. But we learned, too, the history of sinners, girls who were stoned by their villagers, burned by their brothers, killed by their fathers, cast out by their mothers. Our lessons were full of girls who died, stoned for this and stoned for that. More geography. In Afghanistan, in Somalia, in Florida, in Iran, in Iraq, in Egypt, in Syria. Be good, we were told. Legs tight, lips tight, eyes open, mouths closed. Gul was sent to school because her brother threatened to kill her for having a boyfriend. Asilia was sent because it was her best chance to go to law school. All of us were sent to school to be girls, to be protected until we were women. Girlhood, we were taught, was something to be survived. Maybe we thought the world needs enemies it can love, enemies who are no threat at all. Maybe we thought that is the story inside the history of girls. We are virgin sacrifices, Celine called out. Oh, hush, Celine, we said. At night we had told tales. The Somalian girl turned to stone before the attacker's stones hit her, and as the stones bounced to her feet, flakes of dust rose from her, and when she turned back to flesh, she had only cuts and bruises and aches and pains. The Egyptian girl shot lasers out of her turned to ruby eyes and blinded her attackers. The Syrian girls turned to water, drowned their attackers, turned back to flesh, laid out the drowned bodies, and when the bodies were dry, lit them on fire. In Afghanistan, girls rose up to the sun and hid it from the sky until their attackers turned to ice. But don't think we wanted to be boys. Boys seemed lonely. Boys seemed helpless. Eventually, if we were boys, we would be expected to be cruel at least once, if not every day. We just wanted those girls to be strong. I've been listening to Aisha Papacha Bujak read from the Trojan War Museum. What's What was the back and forth around the title being the history of girls versus a history of girls? It's funny because now I usually refer to it as history of girls after doing this huge debate of the or uh. Um, but of course there's a difference between the or uh, you know, a history of girls suggests this is one of many, and the suggests, well, this is the singular story. And it, it felt ultimately like it was a bigger statement to say the, to say, oh, this really is a common story, the dominant story. Um, so in the end, I went with the. I do have to say I'm very wary right now of if I mispronounce the Turkish names in that story. <laughs> I carry this with me all yeah. the time. <laughs> were, were there Turkish names that yeah, you Yeah, there, there were, were two of the girls' names. Sorry, um, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that's remarkable about this story is, is the way this we're in this dilated moment where the newly dead, the ghosts of the newly dead are telling stories to comfort the still alive girls in the rubble. Um, and, and it reminds me of, of, to circle back to the Joshua Ferris blurb that your stories convey history's full force, but are entirely contemporary because many of your stories in a way are using history or using the voices of the dead to tell contemporary stories. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about the ways you use research more broadly. Um, you said you had an epiphany about 
how you wanted to write when you read a section of The English Patient that describes 18 kinds of African wind. So I was hoping you would tell us about this epiphany in relationship to your writing style, but then also the process and the attraction to writing stories that, as you say, aren't autobiographical, that maybe start with something that draws your curiosity and then requires research to bring you up to speed to, to, to write the fictional version. Yeah. So I'm a big Michael Ondaatje fan and there is a moment, um, in, in English patient where he really just goes off on listing these wins and people will often say, Oh, you know, if you do research, how do you know when to stop? And maybe I don't. I mean, one of my stories starts with a two page list of things that were in the, um, Chicago world's fair. But w what I realized with Andaji is he's using research to create tone and emotion and also using it for style. He's not, it does of course create setting. It impacts the plot, the characters, etc. But really he's using it, um, to change our emotional responses, I think, and, and to generate a kind of internal response, not, I'm one of these people that if someone says to me, oh, when they read a book, they visualize everything that's happening. Like that is incomprehensible to me to the point where I think that, that you're all lying, that that's impossible. <laughs> I mean, I hear a story by sound and I don't see anything hardly, you know, I mean, I might have a vague impression of a cat if you say cat, but I really am hearing the sound. And so when, so maybe this is my experience and not a sort of universal truth, but when Andaji lists those winds, I'm not really visualizing wind and how wind can be different or feel different. I'm having the aesthetic experience of hearing the sound that he's creating, but also just the feeling that's attached to, you know, in that case, what was a pretty romantic paragraph. Um, so I've totally forgotten the rest of your question, but I, but I will say that I figured out that I could be using research a lot for style more than um, anything else, I guess, more than for setting. Um, but, it, but on the flip side, doing research did make me feel more confident in order to write these stories. So having a certain amount of historical knowledge and, and, um, probably being able to picture things <laughs> as much as they say I don't was, was also giving me confidence, um, to go forward and, and write the stories, even if I wasn't necessarily intending to duplicate the experience of teaching people about Turkey or showing them Turkey. But I was, trying to create more of an aesthetic experience for the reader, I think. Hmm. So when you mentioned this, this anxiety that some people have about research about, am I doing too much or am I putting too much information in that, that sort of makes me think of some other things that you've said in your, cause you've written quite a bit about the craft of writing and you've pushed back against the widespread emphasis in writing in scene and also against the dictum of show, don't tell. And you tell your students not to fear exposition in their stories. So tell us a little bit more about showing versus telling and why you think it is overemphasized. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a turn where people recognize that the problem is don't. <laughs> you know, that I think in Janet Burway's writing fiction, she she says show and tell, which is, it just makes more sense. And I, I guess my 
basic overall rule that I try to emphasize with my students is that I'm not teaching you rules. I'm giving you tools and that you should can help but rhyme that. <laughs> I feel like um, students should always think of every craft thing that we talk about as a tool that they might reference or you know deploy at some point, but they're going to have to figure out what to do when and that hopefully by reading a lot and just paying attention to a lot of different things that different writers do, that they have a lot of choices. Sometimes people don't love that. They don't want to have a lot of choices. And I think that the reason something like show don't tell has gotten so sold in creative writing pedagogy is because a lot of the pedagogy comes from teaching intro level students who very frequently start out. And I did too, um, writing very abstractly and generally and not generating specifics. And so the, the, this firm rule can be useful to a beginning writer. Um, except I think it's not, I think that it reinforces a certain style of writing a lot in scene or even one of my colleagues is very discouraging about flashback. And I, as much as I respect his opinion on many things, feel like, well, why would you tell students that? Um, you know, why wouldn't we consider flashback to be one of our tools? Of course it can be done. Well, also I think of like well. Alice Monroe. Right. Like she'll have whole stories that are backstory. One thing that happened to me um, in writing this collection was that I was teaching um, undergraduate workshops pretty regularly. You know, I, you know, the intro class or the undergraduate fiction workshop I'd teach almost every year. So I was teaching certain stories almost every year. And one epiphany that I had was the stories that I chose to teach, which are the standard ones that people choose to teach. Sonny's Blues, James Baldwin, Things They Carried, Tim O'Brien, Girl, Annie, by, not by Annie John, by Jamaica Kincaid, um, are not stories that fit these so-called rules that we, we are teaching um, students. And so the stories that a lot of us agree are exceptional stories are exceptions to these so-called rules, um, which is a long way of getting to the idea that I just, I find it useful to be able to use exposition partly because of I'm using sound a lot. Um, but also I think I really like a lot of oral tales and they tend to use exposition a lot and don't write insane scene. Um, I am not in any way opposed to scene. I've been trying to push myself to write more scene because I think I went too far in the other direction. Um, but it's just what, you know, why do we have to have these overly prescriptive or overly prohibitive rules for writing? That just, that doesn't make sense to me. This idea of marrying the practice of a nonfiction writer with the tradition of oral storytelling, which is often not in scene, you, you've written about that process and also talked about Invisible Cities by Calvino as an example of a whole novel written that way. But it made me wonder if you had an answer to this question of, uh, of why you ultimately chose to explore these questions of identity as fiction rather than nonfiction. A, and, but then also why the short story form versus the novel form. And, I, and the, the second question, I guess, I ask because I think that readers come more readily to the novel form, expecting it to be less shapely or expecting more digression or exposition than they do in the story form. Like for some reason, I think maybe you'll disagree that 
people come with a stronger bias of what to expect when they read a short story than they do with a novel. Maybe, but I'm not sure. I mean, I guess it depends who you're talking to. (laughs) In a community of writers, they might have expectations of the short story. When I teach undergraduates, they have zero expectations Mm -hmm. of short story because it's not a form they know well. Um, But you're right that I think the expectation of shortness (laughs) is a... translated into a lot of people's thinking of, um, well, it'll be one singular event. Or I think you know, there's that Poe essay about the story should be read in one sitting and everything should be have the unity of effect, which I just don't believe at all. Um, but so why did I write stories? I do write some essays about my identity, but I'm not very comfortable writing essays in the same way that I'm, for the same reasons, I think that I'm not that comfortable writing about writing autobiographical fiction. I just don't think my life is that interesting. I certainly live by a, like, keep your life quiet uh, so you can do interesting work kind of philosophy. So it's it's just not as interesting to me. I also, I think maybe one way that I started moving away from writing in scene was because when I did try writing some essays and writing in scene, I felt very uncomfortable recreating the dialogue which is something that I think nonfiction writers tend to have to do. And it it just didn't feel like I was being honest when I was creating dialogue. So I wrote some essays that were very driven by exposition or some other alternative. And then I think that bled over into the stories. I do want to write a novel. I love the novel form. I started writing these stories because I had just written a novel that you know was the very common experience of you spend years writing it you get an agent and then it just doesn't happen in the long run and and there were particular circumstances where i was both encouraged and discouraged but i was intending to be revising um the novel that i'd written when i wrote the first couple stories for this book and that stories were better than the novel, and the stories were better than stories that I had written before. So I just kept going on, on stories. Um, I, was, I was more interested to do them. I liked being able to take on a subject for the story and then put it down, do something else for the next story. I liked being able to um, try different stylistic things, and I was setting exercises for myself of, okay, now try this. Try writing a story set in Appalachia. Um, and was it, that to to vary the the tone or, or content from story to story to was, set these challenges was, ahead of yourself? But yes, and also for me to stay interested. Um, just you know, this is my first book, but I've been writing seriously for twenty years. So, so I, you know, I did have to set goals for myself just to keep motivated. Um, well, this idea that you push against of the story needing to be unified, like I feel like maybe similar to Alice Monroe, like there's a lot of novelistic things that typically you don't see in short stories that you pull off in short stories, things that you employ in short stories that seem unusual and yet function really well. And you've talked about your drawered novel as being a, something that you've learned from in learning how to write short stories differently. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a connection between what I just said and that, but I'd love to hear 
what lessons you've carried from the novel that may or may not reemerge from your desk drawer and the stories oh, it may not. <laughs> and the stories that you've <laughs> you've not. written since then. Yeah, I mean I f- feel that the core ultimately the core problem with the novel was not enough it didn't have enough to it and in terms of plot not enough happened but also it just in terms of conception i i started writing it only having written stories in grad school and and as i um came out of the novel experience <laughs> i recognized what had gone wrong but i didn't want to go back and fix it like i just didn't think the idea was the novel idea was good enough for me to go back and create a bigger novel that was on the same subject. But I did feel like I learned how to write bigger by making the mistake of writing a novel that was too small. So in essence, I would say that, um, you know, in writing the novel that wasn't enough, I figured out how to write short stories that did more because, Mm. you know, what's too small in a novel is actually pretty big in in a short story. Um, so, so definitely scope as just an idea, I don't think had ever occurred to me when I was in grad school. Like I really hadn't thought about it. I was just writing short stories that tended to focus on one big event and, you know, had a little bit of flashback and did a kind of two, one, three structure, you know, you start in the middle, go back to a flashback, go to the end. Um, and that's fine. Those, those can certainly work that can work as a structure um but when i wrote the novel you, you you know i was just doing bigger things and so when i gave up on the novel and went to write these stories i think i employed some of the novel writing ideas of scope for the stories well i want to talk about one of the stories that feels like one of the big bigger stories and what you 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 attempt to and succeed at accomplishing uh, and it feels like a magic trip trick on a couple levels. Um, a lot of them do in the sense that we don't know what is real from, from history and what you've dreamed up. And you've described yourself as writing heavily researched fiction about the Turkey of your imagination. And I, I love that conception. But one story where I both imagine you had a particularly large amount of research to do but also that feels like the least story-like and yet somehow functions as a story without many of the elements that I would normally associate with storytelling is a Ottoman's arabesque about a Turkish collector of erotic, sometimes Orientalist art made by French painters, uh, Corbet, Angres, and Delacroix. Uh, so I want you to talk to us about Khalil Bey and also in this weird way, you take this story and make the paintings into characters. At least I experience them almost as much as a character as the people. Um, so talk to us a little bit about this story, which I feel like you allow, I don't know if expository is the right word, but you allow it to be in, a, in, a, in an unusual and strange shape. Yeah, so I probably wouldn't think, or I didn't think of the paintings as characters, but I thought of them as stories. And this story is the one that's the most different in the book from when I originally wrote it. And it was published in the Kenyan Review with these little flash fictions that I wrote that were my version of a flash fiction um, inspired by the painting. 
and and my editor suggested taking them out and i was because the story was already doing a lot of things um and i was comfortable taking them out because i'd never gotten them to be quite as good as i wanted them to be that i wanted i ideally they would have operated as flash fictions that I could have pulled out of the story and they would have been fine, which I didn't think they really did. But so I was thinking about the paintings each as its own, as their own story. And maybe I resist calling them characters a little bit because I think we tend to just use that as shorthand for, oh, well, they're important in the story. And, and yeah, they're definitely important in the story, but, but, but they're more objects with stories than I would say that they are people. This is one of the stories where I'm worried that the fact that I can't read Turkish limited me a lot in my research because there's plenty that's known about Khalil Bey that I don't know because I can't read Turkish and it's not translated into English. And so, you know, I could look something up and see his name in the midst of the sea of Turkish that um, I can't read. So, uh, so I was limited to the smaller, much smaller amount of um, scholarship that's in English so I worry about that. But he, he had to become, I guess, my invention, which is one reason, actually, you know, one of the pieces of advice I got on that story was to do more with Khalil Bey and to turn him into more, even more of a fleshed out character. And I wasn't, I didn't, like I made the paintings more of the story um, because I felt strange about going too far with inventing a version of him that was, that was fictional when he was indeed a real person. Mm. So that's a way to sort of hedge against misrepresenting yeah. this real person. Yeah, definitely. Um, but also, I the research for this was fun, and it really was, you know, like going into an internet sort of rabbit hole of clicking on one thing, which would lead you to another thing. And I tried at least to duplicate that feeling in the story where I feel like one story leads to the next, which is also a kind of Arabian Nights style, um, but I wanted to do it with research as opposed to tales. I was hoping maybe we could hear another little bit of your prose from the story, A Cautionary Tale, which I think is just another good example of mythic yet real life figures that you've placed into a fictional setting. Sure. A Cautionary Tale. In the last years of the 19th century, the third strongest man in the world was said to be a Turk named Yusuf Ishmael, known in his homeland as Yusuf the Great, or Yusuf the Large, and known everywhere else as the Terrible Turk. He was the first of a line of legendary, savage, monstrously large wrestlers, all called, one after the other, the Terrible Turk. It's true some of the Terrible Turks were fakes, not actually Turks at all. And though later some would say Yusuf Ishmael was a French dock worker in a fez, with nothing more than an out-of-control appetite and the ability to spike men into the ground so hard they could not rise without help, he was indeed a Turk, a sultan's favorite, born in a corner of the then immense Ottoman Empire. And though he was in the end perhaps a showman, maybe even a stooge, he also once was a hero and a champion. When he was six years old, Yusuf could pin 12-year-olds to the grass in less than a minute. When he was 12, he could pin full-grown men using just his legs, and by the time he was 13, nobody in his village would spar with him. He had to strengthen his fingers by kneading balls of mud, his legs and arms by pushing on walls of stone, and his shoulders by hoisting fallen trees. By 14, he was never seen without a large and heavy object in his hands. By then, he was already the village champion, 
and he traveled regularly to competitions at weddings and other festivals where he was matched against other village champions, all older and more experienced, and they would lean on each other for hours, testing for the smallest sign of weakness. It was then when Yusuf was not yet the biggest or the strongest, and his matches seemed as if they would never end, that his skills and his fame grew. He had great patience then. He knew how to push men muscle by muscle until finally they fell. By the time a French manager found him and imported him to Europe, he was already the head wrestler of the Ottoman Empire. 37 years old, 6 foot 2, 250 pounds. Not so big now, but big then. 20 pounds heavier than his average opponent. It took him four seconds to win his first European match, in which he lifted the French champion Saïd by the throat, then turned the Frenchman upside down and held him at arm's length while he twisted and turned. It said the Turk had no neck, and that was why Strangler Lewis, the American heavyweight champion, could not defeat him. It said it took six men, three on each arm, to stop the Turk from killing one of his opponents. It said he promised to cut his own throat if he was ever beaten. It said he had a dagger in his turban, even when on the mat. It said that he had a cruel face, that he ate ten times a day and never paid for a meal, that he had a childish love of finery, that he had a sluggish oriental brain, that he did not understand paper money, that he liked the shine and clink of gold coins, that he was once a bandit. It's true he wore his gold belted around his waist, $8,000 on the day he died, or maybe ten, or maybe five, at least 40 pounds in weight anyway. And it's true he drowned, just months after the fight at Madison Square Garden, along with nearly 600 other passengers and crew, when the French ocean liner La Bourgogne... Why did I write a book with so many words I can't pronounce in it? <laughs> <laughs> when the French ocean liner La Bourgogne hit the British ship Cromarthyshire on the American Independence Day, just on the edge of the 19th century, July 4th, 1898... They died, all of them, off the coast of Nova Scotia in the North Atlantic while the ship was on its way to Le Havre, where Yusuf was to join his wife and two children so that they could travel home together. It said the terrible Turk refused to remove his belt full of gold when the ship went down, and he leapt, dagger in hand, onto a lifeboat full of mothers and children, dropping it deep into the sea. It said he wailed from the ship's rail, begging Allah to save him. It said he fell into the water and tried to lift himself onto a lifeboat, rocking the craft so severely with his great weight that a crewman first tried to push him away with an oar, and when that failed, took an axe and cut off each of the terrible Turk's grasping hands. The Turk's grip so tight that his hands remained clinging to the lip of the boat while his body and his gold sank into the sea. We've been listening to Aisha Papacha Bujak read from the Trojan War Museum. So I wanted to move on to the other aspect of how you're often perceived and misperceived. You've written two really amazing essays, one called Am I White? and another called I'm Not Muslim, But. And in them, you recount innumerable contradictory ways you're identified. So you checked white on your college application form, and your white mom asks you if you are sure that is true. Your brother checks other. Your Turkish dad says that Turks are definitely white. You've been called Asian American. And when you asked your mother about it, she says you are a minor Asian, a minor Asian from Asia Minor. And your dad adamantly says no to this. In addition, a school has employed you as a visiting 
professor and claimed you as a diversity hire in doing so. And then you have these great lines like, I often feel like when it comes to being other, I have received many of the perks and none of the penalties. A diversity hire so seamless, I don't provide any actual diversity. And someone once referred to me as a Turkish-American writer, which I don't think I am, even though I, I am. And similarly, you say, somehow I simultaneously believe I have the right to write about anything that I want and that I don't have the right to write about Turkey because writing about Turkey under the false cloak of my real name feels like I am claiming real Turkishness instead of imagined Turkishness. So you, you bring this fear of appropriation, uh, even when writing about your own identity into one of the stories in, in, in this collection in a particularly ingenious way, I think. And that's the story, Mysteries of the Mountain South, where the main character makes claims of identity that go pretty far, perhaps kindred to Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> far. <laughs> but um, talk to us about Mysteries of the Mountain South and how it came to be and about them, if I'm saying this right, the Melungeons. Yeah, so it's funny that you think of the characters a little bit as going too far and like sort of Elizabeth Warren ask cuz I think I read her more sympathetically where um you know she genuinely discovers that she or at least if you can trust these DNA tests which you know we know we can't entirely um but she tr she takes a DNA test that shows that she is of mixed race heritage somewhere in the past um and she has a kind of romantic reaction to that of being like, oh, I'm a little bit black, which she is also uncomfortable with her own reaction. She's aware of how problematic that is. Um, yeah, I love the way the anxiety, her own self-consciousness, because she's she's flirting. Maybe you can give us the setup because there's a romantic attraction with a black man who is the uh, undertaker. And, uh, yeah. or funeral home. Yeah, no, under, I think Undertaker, uh, Undertaker. works. Um, but maybe you could just describe a little bit of the plot because a lot of the, anx the anxiety around how she's going to self-identify is in the, in the, um, in relationship to someone who is clearly of a certain identity. Yeah. So, um, she's just graduated college and she discovers that her grandmother is terminally ill and that basically needs someone to help take care of her. And she's the family member that's most available to do that. So she travels to um, a Western portion of Virginia where her grandmother lives that um, is, is more rural set in Appalachia. And she, it's, de you're definitely correct that there's a certain autobiographical element to this character. She is a sort of Northeastern liberal um proud of herself for being liberal <laughs> white girl <laughs> and um but she's also hyper aware of her own identity and the ways that liberals can be too proud of themselves etc et um and so she ends up in this environment that she didn't didn't really know and she discovers that her family heritage is um at least believed to be by her grandmother Melungeon, which is mixed race, probably partly Native American, partly black, partly white. But there is this, and this is real, 
um, component of the Melungeon community that claims that they are um, descended from Turks. And, and in Turkey, this is of interest to people. Like there are people in Turkey who think that's delightful and they have sister cities in Turkey and Melungeon towns where they see this affiliation, um, which is on the one hand kind of nice, um, this, this global connection, but on the other, it's really about people wanting to identify as white, I suspect. Um, of so, Melungeon. That, um, inhabitants of, of Appalachia wanting to see themselves as white rather than yes. of mixed. Yes. And which, and I do say this in the story too, which sometimes is because of our you know prejudices, but also is practical because there's, it's, uh, you know, safer and more politically powerful and even just economically like if you couldn't own land if you were black but you could if you were white it was sometimes um the choice of people to claim to be white of course and now i've sort of lost track of where i was going with that but um yeah that that is a big element of the story and i did i mean this particular story came about because my mom read a mystery novel by this British writer who who writes a set of Turkish detective novels, um, and her name is Barbara Nadell, and she wrote about a Melungeon community, which nobody in my family had ever ever heard of, and so I looked into it and thought, well, I definitely want to write about that, but I also was excited at the thought of writing an Appalachian story, but I was very wary of the kind of appropriation that I was doing in writing about a region of the country that I'm definitely not from. Um, so for that story, I ended up actually reading huge amounts of Appalachian literature, which was great. Um, and thinking about, well, what seems like, what are the stories that seem to already have been told there? What can I bring to it from my point of view? Um, and, you know, how can I avoid writing a sort of familiar so-called grit lit story. And part of it was, you know, I wanted to write about black and white relations um, because I, I was seeing a lot of sort of Appalachian lit that was about white um, characters and their economic circumstances. Mm. And I just didn't want to write that story again. Um, and so I put my character into this mixed race relationship which was certainly something that she, you know she was not totally prepared for i guess um and ultimately that I, I i did not do this consciously which seems bizarre in, in hindsight but like the thought of having a melungeon character and a black character in a relationship with a white character was not something that that i did on purpose but the parallel is of course obvious in hindsight well, I mean, that's what's kind of interesting when you say you don't write autobiographically, you start with something external that you're interested yeah. in, but it's, uh -oh. it's, Here it comes. yeah, you're right. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to say the Trojan horse. No, but... no. <laughs> no, you're right. I, I trick myself into doing it. I well, I wasn't that. even going to say that, but, yeah. but maybe that is true. But I was just thinking about, maybe this is parallel to like when George Saunders warns against in short stories to, to do a, a big uh, head on rush into like one's most passionate political views that those will all come into the story in a more 
organic way if you're sort of looking slightly obliquely or you're like it's he calls them like shy little animals like they won't approach you unless mm-hmm. you're looking somewhere else um i don't know if that's true but but it is interesting to think that no matter how far away you look your the, the backfill of how you create the story is still going to inevitably be you in some way in some I, I mean, I want to resist that, except all the evidence seems to suggest that it's <laughs> true in this case. Um, so, yes, I agree with a lot of um, the well, Saunders idea that, that you're referencing. I wasn't doing it consciously, although I, I am aware that research was, you know, a way to make me feel comfortable writing about Turkey, which was a way of investigating my own identity. And yet I still resist the idea of my autobiography inevitably coming in. Sure. I don't think, for example, in the story Trojan War Museum, I don't, I just don't, as much as it's a story that um, I created I d- and that my ideas are, and this is where I guess I see my point of view being in it and not my experience being in it, where things that I think and believe are in that story but I just don't think your my life experience, isn't in the story. It isn't yeah. in the story, or even my myself. I mean, I guess identity is, you know, in there in the sense of like, oh well, I'm investigating these parts of myself. But but in a way, they it feels sort of, um, not unique to me, the way that identity comes up in my stories. So it doesn't even feel all that personal. It just feels more of an intellectual idea of well, being a mixed person. Well, whether it's true in general or, or not, in terms of this specific story, yes. um, the resonance between you and the main character, this woman uh, who learns uh, m- more about her identity and her past, but is sort of um, both experimenting, experimenting and struggling with how to contextualize it, how to phrase it, how to own it, um, and getting pushback from the man she's she's flirting with um when perhaps she's going too far a lot of that's a lot of that is so delightful the way you presented her self-consciousness and there's also sort of a um absurdity to it and i feel like the way you you um describe your own situation around identity the um, the impossibilities of all these categories and and fitting in 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 any of them in a way that that feels like it's reflecting your experience there's a way in which it's really humorous and also absurd um but it made me wonder is that is that your experience of it generally i mean is there also anguish and irritation and anger um or other emotions yeah anguish is too far I'll go back for a second and say I do agree that in terms of autobiographical characters, she is probably the character that most overtly has traits of um, myself in there. And it's I hadn't thought about this um, until you brought it up, but I actually made in writing Mysteries of the Mountain South, I made a conscious decision where I wanted to write a more realist, more character centered story than the other stories had been. This is one that I, I wrote later for the collection. Um, and it, I guess it's not that surprising to me that in turning to characterization more, I did kind of inevitably <laughs> turn to, maybe it is inevitable, turn to myself um, more. No, I just forgot what you asked me. 
Oh, just if if really the the hum- the way you oh you, yes, do I see the playfulness that you yeah. feel? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do. Um, yes, that's probably true. That there's a lot of humor to it. Especially my parents love to make fun of me. The funniest thing they can experience um, is uh, having. It's like I. <laughs> It's like they have me perform for them to, so they can laugh at me. They ask me to say certain Turkish words that I say in a really funny way. Um, this is when my dad was live, obviously. Um, they they would have me pronounce a Turkish word, which I would say wrong, and then they'd just giggle hysterically at how bad I am. It's <laughs> <That's> terrible. <laughs> there's, there's certain, like, my, you know, my, my parents were both, both and my mom still is languagey people like they really do appreciate language so they had these birds named ufek tufek which meant teeny tiny and i'm really bad at saying ufek tufek and um there's certain phrases now i won't say them but um certain phrases that they just find it hilarious to Mm. have me perform so i do think you know my own experience is a little bit comical but also i think a lot of times when you're when it's a kind of language communication problem, it turns comic really fast. I mean, there have just been so many moments where if if a Turk hears my name or sees my name, they know it's a Turkish name so that I get emails in, in Turkish that I have to, you know, send to my mom and ask her to translate before I can answer. And for, I, I guess that's not inherently funny, but it strikes me as funny that I'm having to ask my mom to read my mail for me. Um, or just when someone speaks to me in Turkish, I so adamant like i literally throw my hands up um in the air and back away from them um which in it's funny it is funny it's a silly reaction and i can't yeah. stop doing it yeah so that's an accurate the tone of I these explorations ac- is accurate. accurate but also you know she's a young character and there's just something kind of sweet about the um her energy that i think is comic where she's just a little bit frantic a lot of the time in the story and and so that separate from the ethnic identity i think is a, is an age thing where when i now think of my younger self i have a kind of affectionate like oh gosh what a goof <laughs> given your apprehension of calling yourself turkish american even though you also admit I, at the same time that it's completely accurate you could imagine that perhaps you would avoid certain things in the collection that you don't avoid that you for instance engaging with the armenian genocide but not only engaging with the armenian genocide but engaging with it from the point of view of armenian characters so in this in the same essay on on whiteness in relationship to turkishness you talk about what questions and considerations writers should be making in relation to writing from another culture's point of view and I really love some of the quotes that you pulled out. So there's the uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen who said, it is possible to write about others not like oneself if one understands that this is not simply an act of culture and free speech, but one that is enmeshed in a complicated, painful history of ownership and division that needs to be addressed responsibly. And you also quote Claudia Rankin from The Erasial Imaginary, that suggests writers should stop asking whether they have permission to write about experiences outside of their own and instead ask why they have the desire. So you've obviously given this a lot of thought as a writer yourself in general and in relationship to how you teach your students. And true to form, you did a lot of research um, around the 
Armenian genocide, and you cite Anthony Slide's ravished um, Armenia and the burning Tigris by Peter Balakian as two of several sources. But I'd love to hear, as a nod to Rankin, about your desire to write about the Turkish genocide against the Armenian people, but also to write about it from the protagonist who's Armenian. I had It never occurred to me to write about it from the perspective of a Turk or an American, um, and I don't really know why that is. Um, I guess it's just, well, both of the Armenian characters in the story of the dead are based on real people, so I guess that's that's really at the core, is they, they really were Armenian. Um, but I did feel like The Dead was the last story I wrote for this book, and I, I actually signed with an agent um, based on a manuscript that did not include The Dead, and she said, you know, I think we need one more story before we send this out, and I had the idea for the story, but I hadn't written it, and I was hoping I didn't have to write it, <laughs> and she did say, write it. Um because I, I am certainly wary of misrepresenting a historical event that's traumatic still for m- many um, survivors and descendants, um, particularly because the Turkish government still won't acknowledge that this was a genocide. But I also I did think this was a case where being someone who is both American and Turkish and, and raised very much in an American community where I had an advantage where, you know, my dad, who was in many ways, a you know, not prejudiced person, he could not have written the story <laughs> because he really did still hold that loyalty to the Turkish narrative. Or, you know, he would never say anything negative about Ar- Armenian. He would say, Armenians hate Turks. They hate me, um, which is just a defensive posture, um, so really, I, I felt like as someone who is both Turkish and American, I'm in a position where I can safely talk about the genocide um, because I'm not in Turkey and I'm not, well, let's hope, I'm going to be taken to court the way Orhan Pamuk and Elif Shafak and other writers have been. And, you know, right now, plenty of people are imprisoned in Turkey um, for writing things the government doesn't agree with. So I can I can do that from my perspective. But I still worry about it. I do. I do worry about um, readers thinking I took too many liberties, or that it's not my story to tell. You said one of the considerations you had was not wanting to make violence poetic. That you wanted to write bluntly about some of the things that happened, and because of that, your copy editor had asked carefully whether the details were proven. And I was hoping maybe you could just talk about that exchange that you had. Yeah, well, it didn't, you know, it didn't go far into an exchange because nobody asked me to prove. <laughs> and But I think because it's fiction, you know, that I ultimately didn't have to worry about it. Um, I, I did wonder why the copy editor even asked, because it is fiction. I, I wasn't clear on why I was being asked to, like, second that this could have happened or did happen. Um, but But in my experience, when I said... Well, there's plenty of evidence that's just, you know, what are we going to call factual evidence? There's plenty of oral histories from both Armenians and um, missionaries and government people that these things were happening. Um, So I I don't doubt, I firmly believe they happened. But 
Well, one thing I'll say is that in doing the research, I mean, I really did not learn much about the Armenian genocide until I was fully adult and figuring these things out of myself, for, for myself. I mean, it really was not something that that, that story wasn't told in my household. Um, and when I read the actual narratives, survivor narratives and, and histories, it's shocking. I mean, the graphicness is shocking. And I felt that probably, you know, the whole point is to not cover that up. And I can make it sound prettier, but that's that seems really wrong. <laughs> you know, that my, my style or my desire as a writer is often to sound more lyric or to make things sound pretty, but that seems really wrong. So I did leave a section of the story that's the first page of the story that I think is pretty blunt and graphic um, and yet still feels true to the voice of the story. So I was just aware of, and, and I'm not sure it's possible to write something in a way that properly conveys the horror and yet still can be in, as, as part of literature. I don't, I don't know. Could could we hear that opening to that story? Yikes, sure. For years, Arapian's wife Harriet had held a party famous throughout Key West on his birthday. Then there was the war, and nobody expected a party, except there were the invitations, embossed on thick cardstock, delivered three weeks ahead of time, same as every other year. That was 1918, when Arapian turned 68, two years before he died, seven months before Harriet died. In Key West, Arapian was known as the Turk, though he was Armenian. The extraction of fingernails, the application of burning irons to the breast, the pinching of skin with burning clamps, boiled butter poured into wounds, the tearing off of genitalia, the penetration of orifices with swords, with brooms, with flesh, the sawing off of hands and feet, arms and legs, the bayonetting of babies, the slitting of throats, the exhibition of the massacred. The difference between Turk and Armenian? The Turk extracted the Armenian's fingernails. The Turk applied burning irons to the Armenian's breast. The Turk pinched the skin of the Armenian with burning clamps. Or he had the curd do it. Turkey for the Turks, they said. In Key West, sponges made Arapian a millionaire, one of the richest men in America at the time, an immigrant from the Ottoman Empire, which would have killed him if it could. Bow down to the almighty sponge, either the highest order of plant or the lowest order of animal. I've been listening to Aisha Papacha Bujak read from the Trojan War Museum. So, so you've also said that unlike you're imagining your way into Turkey, you, you think it would be unethical to invent too much in the case of writing fiction about a historical genocide especially one that has been denied like the Armenian genocide has and continues to be by the Turkish government. In in that same interview, you say you, you're writing an essay now about how in hindsight you feel like you made some decisions in the story without enough of a guiding principle. And I wasn't entirely sure. I was just curious as a writer, as a fellow writer, and uh, with questions that I think a lot of people would contemplate in this scenario what as you look back and as you write this essay in progress what what are you grappling with that maybe you wish you had more of a guiding principle around so in this particular story um the character arapian is a is a real 
person, um, and I kept his name. And then um, there's the character Anahid, who is based on a real person, um, Arshulis Mardiganian, who I changed her name. To, I gave her my own name, but I really took the circumstances of her life to be someone who survived genocide and to um, have a movie made of her story in which she plays the role of herself so that she's reenacting traumas of being raped and seeing people murdered and tortured. Um, that really happened to Arshulis Mardiganian, but I gave her a different name in my story. And I, do, I don't know... I mean, I, I still think that was the right decision not to use her real name because I have, I fictionalized just this entire episode. Um, and it would seem weird to do that for someone's real name, but then logically just why did I keep Arapian's name? Um, and, and I don't, I don't have a good answer. And so I guess I'm trying to figure out like, Oh, is there a way in the future that I can be a little more careful? And, um, you know, when I was in grad school, one of my friends said, well, what, you know, journalists have a code of ethics. Why don't poets, which she's a poet, have a code of ethics? And I thought, well, why, you know, why don't fiction writers have a code of ethics? And, and, you know, reasons why are kind of obvious. But also, why don't I have a code of ethics that I've sort of more consciously thought about? And so I've been trying to write this essay, um, where I articulate what my code of ethics would be, and it is proving difficult for probably obvious reasons to figure out what it would be. But mostly I, I'm finding that just what I need, you know, the journalism code of ethics is things like tell the truth and, and don't harm your sources. And, and um, I feel like, sure, we could have the same thing as fiction writers, but really, especially as a short story writer, I've been thinking a lot about, well, what are the contexts that I'm erasing when I tell a short story, which inevitably is a smaller frame that leaves a lot of things out. Um, and am I somehow duplicate by changing the name of this real person? Am I somehow duplicating the bad experience that she had of having her story sold, even though it was sold for um, positive reasons, the, the profits went to, um, refugee relief for the Armenians. Well, I, I want to ask you more about the, the considerations you do do around the commercialization of this woman's life. And what's fascinating about the Armenian characters in, in, in the Trojan War Museum is I feel like they do share um, some of the same concerns as your other characters in this really, in a way that deepens the themes of the collection as a whole. For instance, the Armenian protagonist has an issue with his name. He's being called, he's being called the Turk, even though he's Armenian and the re real figure that Anahid is based on Mardiganian. She had a story that was commercialized, an identity that gets stereotyped and sort of sold much like Yusuf the wrestler in a cautionary tale or the mechanical Turk in gathering desire. So there's this, I can see why you'd be attracted to Mardiganian's story um, because these other stories also feel like they're playing with identity and in contrast to stereotype, even as people are participating in the stereotype. But one thing I, you, you just hinted on that I'd like to hear more about is how a little more about is how you didn't want to further commercialize this woman's trauma. 
Instead, you tried to tell the story of the commercialization itself. So could you parse that a little bit more for us? That making the commercialization of her trauma, the story in a, in a way was a move to not further commercialize her story, if I'm getting that correctly. Yeah. So the one thing I wish if I had could make one more revision to this uh, story, the one thing I wish I had done was built into the story a reference to the real person to alert the reader to the fact that there was a real person. Because I, I do do that with Arapian and his wife, where I have, at least I think it was not deleted out of the story, maybe it was. I have a reference where I note that I changed the death date for Arapian's wife. It, you know, it's a story that it, I've created a narrator that can break down the regular walls of, you know, talking directly to the reader. And I wish I had done that um, with Anahid's story to kind of make that more overt. I don't think that answers your question, but I don't, I, I don't think I have, a, I don't think I have a good answer for this. Um, Let, let's, let's go somewhere else with it. Because mm -hmm. when you talked about maybe you could have broken the fourth wall, I, I did want to talk about the ways in which you playfully experiment in, in the book as a whole, because I feel like this story of Mardiganian's um, life is a good segue to that because Kirkus review highlights what it considered the uh, postmodern moves you make in the book. And they felt like the way that you put imagined characters among real characters was this clever, sly, postmodern move. But you pointed out on Twitter that the characters they referred to were, as you just discussed, based on real people, both Anahid in, in the Armenian story and the girl hunger striker in iconography are based on real human beings. Even though Kirkus was wrong about these, uh, your stories are, I think, one to the next frequently employing unconventional story techniques. And it is one of the best things about reading them, I think. Um, many of the stories break the fourth wall. The reader is addressed to directly by the narrator who says lines like, I know what she said, but I won't tell you. Or the narrator foreshadows and withholds at the same time by saying, there will be a dispute over what happens next. And there are also a, a lot of stories within stories and often stories within stories that have different tones or formats. For instance, in the Melungeon story, we, we get a blog exchange. So there's like this syntactical and tonal juxtaposition between the two parts of the story, but that happens often in, in the book. Um, and you even have a story that has multiple story versions of why the character is doing what they're doing. So I wanted to hear a little more about the ways you defy contemporary storytelling convention or your desire to, or, and, or inspirations in relationship to it. Arabian Nights is definitely a big story and stories thing. And I admit I haven't ever read the whole thing straight through, but, um, certainly that was an influence also, um, the, the writer Stephen Milhauser was a really big influence for me where I don't know that he does explicitly stories and stories, but he does use a lot of exposition and, and telling and, um, sort of big scope storytelling. Um, the story Eisenheim, the illusionist, that voice, it f gave me the voice for a cautionary tale that, that the story, the story about the terrible Turk, um, 
So the influences, I could kind of go on and on because I don't, I think what we refer to as conventional storytelling is, you know, it is often the thing we see the most, but, but maybe, maybe we shouldn't refer to it as conventional storytelling because this idea of stories and stories is, you can find it in tons of places. This idea of all the way back to Don Quixote or farther back than that, all the way back, (laughs) all the way back. (laughs) Um, so none of, I did not feel like I was doing anything new. I felt like the one thing maybe I was doing um, was putting together old things in a different way that felt a li- little bit new. I have at this point in my life read a lot of short stories and read a lot of um, workshop short stories. You know, my, my students are often writing short stories. So I probably um, overly fetishize that idea of doing something new or doing something original. I just knew that with every story, I didn't want to feel like I'd read it before. And I I can really, I can pick out the moments that feel a little familiar where I feel like, oh, maybe I didn't fully succeed in that. But, but the goal overall was to do things that I felt like I hadn't read before. And usually I was building that out of layering old things together and, you know, doing juxtapositions that maybe felt new. I'm not a person that can sort of have this imaginative leap forward where I create something that's nobody's seen um, out of nothing. <laughs> I need building blocks, and I, I could tell you an entire like, huge list of influences for every single story um, or ideas that I was layering in for every, every single story. So I always felt like I was building things out of blocks well, maybe I'm overanalyzing, but I I had a I created my own theory about why the stories are um, playful with voice and experimental with structure, and and it's it's related to something you once said about your name. You said feeling a distance from one's name might be useful to a writer, but you don't go on to say why. But feeling a distance from one's name and from all the various labels placed on one's identity felt at least in my imagination, connected to your interest in having us feel the presence of a storyteller or narrator that was between the writer and the reader to have the storyteller distinct from the main character. Because that's very, I mean, that's not new, obviously, but it's less common in contemporary short fiction. Um, We have not only often have a storyteller intermediary, but one that you know, breaks the walls mm-hmm. also, which not all, so it's, there's storyteller intermediaries who are more, uh, who behave better than your storyteller <laughs> intermediaries right. too. Yeah. I think there's probably a bunch of things happening there. Part of which is just a, uh, reserve to my personality that, you know, whether it's tied to any, any aspect of my Turkish identity or not is just, is there. So I think, um, maybe it's just appeals to me to have layers of remove or a narrator that can just pop up out of nowhere and be like, I was here all along. You didn't notice. Um, but so I think maybe that's partly from, you know, me as a person, but also just, um, it was useful for sound to have a narrator that could, that could pop up and, and vary the sound or even, um, useful for closing the distance for psychic psychic distance um, and having a little bit more intimacy or a little bit more distance. So I think a lot of times maybe it reads as creating distance, but I also think that that actually can close the distance. Oh, I didn't feel like it was distancing. 
but I did feel like I, I was pre- I was conscious of the layers right. the, of story. Yeah. Just like I, you know, like when I think back to the mechanical Turk and identity, that there's the mechanical Turk as a representation. There's somebody moving the Turk, and then there's someone playing against the Turk. And somehow I feel like that structure is also going on somehow. Like you have this line, I've come to believe that all third-person narrators are actually first-person narrators who have not revealed themselves. To my mind, there's always a storyteller, and they always have a point of view. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's connected. But I don't feel like the, the device, if you want to call them devices, in your stories are distancing in any way. Like they're revealing. Well, they, yeah, they can't. They, I think they work both ways. I think the same, the same, they maybe control distance in a way that can pull back or, or um, zoom in. But yeah, I think that you're, that you're right, that, that that's a structure that unconsciously um, can be applied in a lot of ways. Also, maybe it's a little bit separate, but I, but I want to get it in here. One thing that I think I resist in terms of my identity is actually, it's kind of funny because now I think, feel like, um, because of the book and my writing, like I'm talking a lot about my Turkish self. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, I have been thinking a, a lot more about it over the past 10 years of writing this book, but also like my American side, um, is really influential in, in my life. And a lot of sort of who I am comes from the American half of the family and the sort of stories that come from that side of the family. And so I'm, it's just interesting for me to observe now that that is being erased, which I do think not by you, I mean, by sort of in, in general, by the book. <laughs> and, and so I, you're becoming more Turkish I'm, in the eye of the public. Yes. That's fascinating. And, and because my mom's family is very waspy, our family goes back to, they were colonizers. Um, some of them were immigrant. They were both colonizers and immigrants um, throughout, depending on what moment in American history you're talking about. And a lot of them did really, really well um, financially. And so my grandparents, my mom grew up with a cook and a nanny and, and all of that. And I did not grow up like that at all. So I am equally fascinated by her past in the same way that I am fascinated by my dad's past. Like they're equally foreign to me and equally interesting. And there's a part of me that thinks, Oh, you know, with the things I write next, like, do I want to do an American version? And probably not because who wants to hear about like rich white wasps? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, That was... doesn't feel uninvestigated. Right. Yes. Uh, but I do think my mom's experience um, is pretty interesting and, well, speaking of your next project, can you talk a little bit about what, what, because it's, it makes me curious to think you, you conceive of a book that also sort of requires a certain self reconception. What, what would arise as a desire from finishing that book as a next project? This is probably not an exact answer, but so what's been, int- so I'm working on a novel, but I also have found myself having some story ideas that, you know, it would make sense for me not to pursue them because they are story ideas that belong to this book, which I know I'm not going to do a second book like this. And yet I still want to write those stories. So I think I probably will write those stories, even though their time has passed in terms of being in this book. Um, but I am working on a novel that has to do with immigration and citizenship. And you would unquestionably 
think came out of my Turkish part, but it but it is about a mixed a family that's American and Turkish, so maybe that's more reflective of my own experience. But I had a second novel idea that I'm equally interested to do that has nothing to do with Turkey, and there is, you know, maybe I would write that novel next, except I do feel like I'm supposed to stick to Turkishness a little bit. I am I'm really genuinely wary of just writing a novel that has nothing to do with Turkey and trying to publish that next. So whether this is a good way to make a decision or not, I feel like well first I'll write the novel that's kind of Turkish and then I'll write the novel that isn't Turkish at all. So I do find you know being pressured a little bit to mm. um be this certain kind of writer. What an so, irony that it's pressured the opposite way. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, so I don't know what will happen. I guess we'll see. Huh. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank Papacha. you. We were talking today to Aisha Papacha Bujak about her debut story collection from Norton, the Trojan War Museum. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs> Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Aisha Papacha Bujak's work can be found at aishapapachabujak.com, and she adds a reading of her as-of-yet unpublished essay documented to the bonus audio archive. This joins supplemental material from previous conversations by Brandon Shimoda, Ted Chang, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Boris Gander, Diane Williams, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Mm-hmm.